What's up, everybody? We get so many questions about conspiracy theories on cases that we're following on this channel, about what ifs. And someone said, Pete Sardis and I have known each other for over 20 years, and we usually see eye to eye, but there are some things we see very differently. I'm going to follow the case. Pete's going to bring in the theories. What is mainstream media saying? What are the reports saying? Is it real? Is it fake? Did it come in at trial? And we're going to discuss it because as we've seen in trials, one side or the other can do something that makes previously inadmissible evidence come in by opening the door. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you listen to our podcast. Let me know what you think in the comments. Welcome back to another episode of the Opening the Door podcast, where we are going to be talking about Ethan Crumbly's parents, a school shooting case that has implicated parents for their handling or mishandling of a firearm to their son. And I think this could have implications on school shooting cases across the country. I think it's a really important precedent that it is going to set. They're appealing these issues multiple times to the higher courts before they even ever get to their trial. And with me helping break this down and where we think this is going and why we are here is my partner, Pete Sardis. Let's jump right into it. All right. What do you want to know? It's this is there's part of me that thinks is absolute insanity. And the reason I say that is Michigan is attempting to prosecute Crumley's parents because they knew or should have known that he had mental illness issues, at which point they should have gotten him treatment. And because of that, they knew or should have known that he shouldn't have access to a firearm, whether you believe that the um, the Crumbleys bought the gun for, for their boy or whether you believe that they just failed to lock it up. That's the basic gist of what this entire manslaughter prosecution is all about. So define manslaughter just so we can kind of, so this is a school shooting case in Michigan. Ethan Crumley's school shooter pled guilty. He did it. There's no issues with that. Okay. Right. So he did it. Now, how do the parents even have manslaughter charges? Let's start with that. All right. So the state charges four counts of involuntary manslaughter, one count for each of the, um, the, the people that were killed in the Oxford shooting back in November of, uh, of uh, 2021. So here's how it works in Michigan. Um, recognize that manslaughter is the least of the homicides, meaning you've got murder one, murder two, obviously, and then you've got manslaughter. And basically, Michigan's involuntary manslaughter basically says that if you knew or should have known that something bad could have happened to somebody based on your conduct, you can be charged criminally. It's a felony, $7,500 fine up to 15 years in prison for each parent. Okay, so now knowing that your negligence caused the deaths can get us there. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what the Crumbly parents are accused of as far as negligence with this firearm. Yeah, it's kind of two sides. Side number one is because they recognize that their child had mental illness issues and they weren't properly taking care of those, they, that puts them on notice that they should have either not given him a, hand, a, a firearm, giving him access to it or they should have taken steps to ensure that he didn't have access to the guns in the house. For example, lock them up, put, you know, you know uh, trigger locks on them, something like that. So there's a lot of evidence from the school. And I think the school has been sued and may have already paid out from the victim's families or to the victim's families. There's a lot of evidence that he has made a lot of statements 
um, and done a lot of stuff that you would be on notice of as parents that he has mental health issues. Even the day of the shooting, they called the parents in and allegedly said, take him home. And they refused to take him home for one reason or the other. There's also potential evidence um, from social media that the parents did in fact buy the gun for Ethan Crumbly and took him to the shooting range and ta taught him how to shoot the gun. So if we look at the facts um, most favorable to the state in a light most favorable to the state, assuming they can prove all of that, do you think there is a legitimate case for manslaughter here? Or do you think this is a situation where an individual made a bad decision to commit a crime and the parents should never be held liable for what their kids do if their kids do have mental health issues or go do uh, commit some horrible crime? See, and that is the key, horrible crime. We're, we're not talking about whether or not the Crumblers are potentially civilly liable to these people. We're talking about whether or not they should be prosecuted for a crime based on what their son did criminally. And, and that's it's kind of a slippery slope for me. Could you imagine every time a, you know, a kid gets in a car accident, their parents get charged with you know, uh, you know, reckless driving because they provided the kid a car and you know, they should have trained them to make sure that they didn't cause a crash or didn't do something illegal like drag racing or speeding. And, and I'm looking at this case from a perspective of, yeah, I get this as manslaughter and I get this as serious, but you know, this is really opening up a door. I'm not sure that they're ever going to be able to close. So do I think they're going to be able, the state's going to be able to prove that there was at least some sort of knowledge about his mental health? Absolutely. I think there's no doubt that the state's going to be able to prove that. Do I think they're going to be able to prove some sort of foreseeability? Uh, it's a toss up. I think the courts have indicated that foreseeability is something that is going to be the issue in this case. Could the Kremlis have, uh, have foreseen that their son was going to take the gun to school and shoot four people? And I think a lot of that may come down to, and as we look at other school shooting cases, their drawings, their talk, what they said, what was going on in their mind, the depraved thoughts that they had, and maybe jokes or stories that they would have told, and what that could lead you to believe. So from your perspective, do you think that this is, it seems like you think this is bad for the law and for society that these kind of charges can come under these facts? Yeah, I do. Because especially when you're using a case like this as precedent, listen, you've got aggrieved people. You've got a school shooting. No matter how you look at it, a jury is going to be affected by that. And the last thing you want is for a jury to make a determination about the guilt of these parents based on emotion, based on, on empathy. Um, you know, I know that the, the court, uh, the rules of, uh, of the jury instructions tell me you're not supposed to do that, but let's be honest, human beings have emotion and those emotions always take a toll one way or another in the decision-making process. So I'm just worried that this is not the case where you want to use as a test because I think there's a very good chance these people could potentially be convicted, at which point it opens a door to parents being prosecuted for all types of things that bad things that kids might do. So the only pushback I would have on that is this specific case I do see differently. I see a lot of factors in this case. Again, right now we're viewing all of the evidence in a light most favorable to the state and assuming they can prove that the parents knew all of this stuff, bought him the gun, showed him how to use it, left it unlocked and available to him, didn't take him home from school when they were warned, I kind of can see the point of prosecuting this specific case under these specific circumstances. And if you don't have these facts, then you can't go forward. 
it would be different than you having your guns locked in your safe and your kid sneaking into your car at night, getting the key, unlocking them, taking them, leaving them, you seeing that it's empty and chasing your kids, trying to stop them, and you don't get there in time. That's a different factual scenario. Right. I think well, to deter parents from, from giving open access to kids that may have mental health issue, issues to firearms, I would be good with criminal law deterring those actions and that, that negligence, I think. Right. But based on what you're talking about, they should have charged them as accessories because if the, if the facts are he has mental health issues and you guys bought him a gun, showed him how to use it, knowing that his intention was to go, you know, go That's shoot different. Up not knowing, not knowing that his intention is to go shoot the school. That's right. not the facts. It is, should you have known that he was a danger to the community based on his mental health issues, statements, actions in his case. And then with that knowledge, should you have taken more precautionary steps? Now, I don't think anyone's going to claim that they knew he was going to shoot up the school. They bought him the gun, showed him how to use it so he could go shoot up the school. I don't think there's any allegations of that. Right. I think it's more of they just didn't care. They were negligent parents. They didn't do what they should have done. And there needs to be deterrence from this. Parents need to protect their surroundings and not allow children to have access to guns. Right. And I agree with you. The fact these are these people are not the parents of the year. Clearly right. not going to win any awards. But again, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. Does it, if a jury determines that, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, these people knew that he had an issue and it was foreseeable that he could go and shoot up a school. then I guess they're going to wind up doing some prison time. So what's going on right now with the appeal? Cause that's one of the reasons that this has become relevant again is they have stopped this case because I think exactly what you're saying is the truth and the reality that they know if they go to trial, they're probably going to lose. And then right. once they lose, everything becomes a lot more difficult. Um, now sure. you're appealing the case, you're sitting in prison, you have rights stripped away, you're not presumed innocent. So that's why they have stopped and appealed this up to the Michigan Supreme Court, I think. And yeah, well, they've done two levels of it, but go ahead. I'm sorry to mean they're wrong. trying what they're trying to do and why you appeal something in the middle of a case like this is you're trying to say this ain't right legally. You shouldn't be able to go forward on this kind of what you're saying. And they want the higher courts in Michigan to make a call before this case ever, ever goes to trial. So set the stage, yeah. tell us procedurally how we got there. Okay. Here's what happens. Uh, at some point, the Crumley's lawyers file an, an interlocutory appeal. And just for our listeners, interlocutory appeal, meaning that it's an appeal done in the course of the actual litigation. So in the course of the criminal trial, they stopped the process and appealed to the appellate court in Michigan. And the basic gist is this. The defense is arguing that the prosecution's evidence is not enough to support a conviction for the parents. Therefore, they shouldn't be allowed to go forward prosecuting this case. So that gets filed back in, I think, the beginning of the year in March, end of March, March 23rd. The appellate court uh, basically throws them out and they, they say that these are not issues that are ripe for consideration now. Interlocutory appeals are really rare in criminal cases. Let's start with that. So um, what winds up happening is they send the case right back to the trial court. And the, the Crumley's uh, lawyers now have appealed to the Supreme Court asking them to make a decision about whether or not there's enough evidence to support the proposition that these two people are criminally liable for their son's mass shooting. Um, this one's going to be tough. Uh, I don't even know if the Michigan Supreme Court is going to take this up because they don't have to. This is not like like the appellate court. That's their job is to hear these appeals, right? 
the Michigan Supreme Court, this is not a uh, an original jurisdiction issue for them. So they could very well say, not something we have jurisdiction over. We're not going to hear it. Send them right back to trial court. Now, they might hear it because it's obviously a, a, an issue of great public importance, which is one of the Supreme Courts, most states' Supreme Courts, or let me be more clear, most states' highest courts. Um, mm. Jurisdictions is to consider things of very serious uh, that have implications in the public right now. So they could take this. Now, what's interesting is the Crumleys had an oral argument in the lower court. They haven't asked for one in the Supreme Court. So we'll see. I don't know if they at this point think that this is a long shot also, but they're just preserving the record to make sure that there's something on the record to demonstrate it. But so I'm what happened, these guys are going to trial. So what happened when they appealed it to the appellate court? What were their arguments? Um, what, what were they trying to get the court to decide? Yeah. So at the appellate court level, they're saying there's just not enough evidence to support a conviction because James and Jennifer Crumley didn't actually participate in the events, which would make them accessories to a crime. So um, the, the, the judges, the argument was basically around whether or not it's foreseeable. They, the judges at the appellate level basically said, look, clearly not good parents. There's evidence to support a prosecution, which is why they sent it back. But they at least agreed that causation is going to be the problem, meaning was the parents' conduct did it, was it foreseeable that it would have led to these sort of consequences? It's like when you drink and you drive, is it foreseeable that you can cause an accident? Kind of the same concept, but is it, my son has mental illness. We have possession of a gun that he has access to. Is that enough of a leap to get to, he is going, it's foreseeable that he is going to cause a mass shooting or is it just not, not a causal nexus is the, the legal term between those two events. The appellate court sent it back and said, and they kind of washed their hands of it and said, this is not ripe at this point. Send it back to trial court. And when we all have your trial and we see what the evidence actually looks like, that's when you can come back if you have to and make a decision, have us make a decision about whether it was sufficient evidence to support a conviction. So basically they're saying we can't make our call right now. Right. And I think they don't want to make the call because even the Supreme Court, I think at this point is looking at it saying, not the Supreme Court, excuse me, the appellate court is looking at it saying, you know, do we really want to be in a place where we're creating precedent for interlocutory appeals on criminal cases? Not really. So, you know, there's enough evidence, at least because the state has provided enough evidence to demonstrate that they have a right to try this uh, in front of a jury. And that's the point is the first step is you go to the trial court as a criminal mm-hmm. defense attorney it, like, let's just give the hypothetical on what you would do. So case comes, you don't think it's at all right for the factual scenario. It's a square peg in a round hole that they're trying to do. And where do you go? What's your first step there? Well, the first thing you do is you would go to the trial judge and move to dismiss the charges, basically saying that whatever the state has or the prosecutors allege is not sufficient. There's not enough there to justify a crime. Therefore, the court, the trial court itself should dismiss the charges. And that's the step you're supposed to go. That's the correct right. route. We've heard about this in the uh, Brian Koberger case with the gag order. They went all the way up to the Idaho Supreme Court first. Idaho Supreme Court said, no, you got to ask the lower court first about their own gag order so they don't actually yeah. make a decision. Additionally, by doing that motion to dismiss, telling the court that you think that it's a failure to state a cause of action or um, even under these facts, there's no cognizable claim for uh, uh, manslaughter or charge for manslaughter. It just doesn't fit based on the factual scenario, even again with the facts um, viewed in the light most favorable to the state. 
and that protects your ability to appeal it after you lose, if you do lose. You don't have to do this interlocutory appeal in order to protect your appellate rights post-trial. They just did that because I think exactly what you mentioned off the top, they think they're going to lose, and then it just, everything gets a lot harder. Yeah, and I think people need to understand, appellate courts, what they're really supposed to do is review what lower court judges have done. They're not supposed to make new law. They're supposed to review what was done and determine whether or not that was fair to the defendant whether or not, you know, whatever the issue is, was significant enough to potentially have a different outcome. And that's when they send stuff back to be redone. They're not a court of original jurisdiction where you go and you ask them to make a decision without the entire trial process. And that's the the beauty about our system. There's a process. Uh, You know, you go to the trial court, you ask the judge to make a decision. If that doesn't work, you actually, you know, try the case, you re- uh, allege your objections. You explain to the judge, you know, uh, uh, in the future why what you had raised before is important and why that should have been taken into consideration. So the court has an opportunity, meaning the trial court, to change their rulings. And if it goes south for you, then you go to the appellate courts and say, "Hey, the trial court judge did it wrong. I filed my motions. These were my arguments why the trial judge shouldn't have act, uh, ruled the way they ruled, and they ruled against me." And then if the appellate court decides, uh, they agree with you. Then they send instructions back to the lower court saying either A, you did it wrong. This is how you should do it. Or they say, judge did it fine. Or there's not enough error here to change the outcome, at which point no harm, no foul. That's the process. Uh, So based on your thoughts kind of on how this case is, you think not right for these charges and is going to set bad precedent, assuming they go and lose, Okay. The vast majority of cases that go up on appeal after they go lose a criminal case in criminal court have no shot. But do you think that this is one that actually might have a shot based on how far it could stretch as far as setting precedent for how other, you know, any case, I mean, any, any shooting yeah. cases and any cr- crimes committed by minors, right. this case could affect. I do. And I think what's going to happen is I think the appellate courts has already considered this. They want to see how this plays out in the trial court. At which point, when it does come back, they're going to consider it. And based on the evidence that came out, I think you're going to see an appellate opinion that says, you know, this is what happened. This is okay. This is not. You know, this should have come in. This shouldn't have. You know, based on this evidence, there either is or is not sufficient evidence to believe that these parents were criminally liable for the conduct of their child. Uh, I think that if they lose, meaning the Crumleys lose at the appellate court after this trial, I think then it's going to go to the Supreme Court because then it is part of their jurisdiction because it is an issue of great public importance. And I think you're going to see the Supreme Court of Michigan formulate what will then become the case law that lower courts will consider when when looking at these types of cases in the future. So where we're sitting right now with the Crumblies are, they lost in trial court. Um, well, they haven't lost yet. I mean, yes, they've, they've lost, lost this issue. That's yeah. what I'm saying. This, this issue on whether or not right. these charges should even be allowed under these facts. They've lost that argument in the trial mm-hmm. court. Um, right. They didn't get an answer, basically, in the appellate court, or they lost that's, the appellate court? No, that's fair. The appellate court said there's enough evidence for the prosecution to go forward. So we're sending it back because okay. this is not so they, an they issue. Basically didn't wanna, they yeah. didn't want to overturn the trial court. They punted, put it right back. And so now it's in the Supreme court. What do you expect the Supreme court to do? I am. Um, my opinion is that the Supreme court is probably not going to take this appeal right now. I think that they're going to, they're going to basically say, this is not an area of original jurisdiction. 
and you know punt it again back to the trial court to give the process an opportunity to happen. Yeah, that's, I think that's the most likely. The most likely thing that's going to happen is they're going to do the same thing that the lower appellate court did. I mean, that's, that's usually most likely what happens in situations like this anyways. Yeah. And, and you don't have a right to go to the Supreme Court of your state for every case. Because, if you know, again, the Supreme Court is, has a very limited. And when I say Supreme Court, I mean the highest court of the state. Because in some places like New York, right. the Supreme right. Court's actually the court of original jurisdiction. So when you go to your highest court, that court is really designed to, to, to focus on public policy issues. They're not really there to kind of deal with day-to-day operations of a specific trial case. Right. Yeah. And I, and I agree. And I think that's what's going to happen too, which is basically a non-answer. The case is going to go to trial. I expect him to get convicted. It sounds like you expect him yeah, to get convicted. And then this is something we'll probably have to circle back around on and see what happens when the appeal is actually ripe. And is this yeah. something that gets overturned? And then how is it going to affect other courts and other jurisdictions? Yeah. Cause I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on this because at this point there is no state that I'm aware of and definitely not in the federal statute that that really makes this causal leap between a minor's criminal conduct and the parent's knowledge, other than, of course, if you got if you basically enable the child, right, at least one, you're an accessory yeah. yet. Right. So right. they basically are saying, and, I, and again, the Crumleys aren't the greatest parents from what we've heard so far, but they're basically saying you as a parent have an obligation to your child, and that obligation is to not only keep them safe, but the obligation to make sure that they don't go out there and do bad things, which is frankly what we all, I think, as you know, reasonable parents believe is our obligation to our children. Right. And the we try to is, do that. Yeah. But we are do. we criminally responsible for what right. they do? And I think that there's a way to allow this case to go forward and still not apply it to all criminal actions of minors. So that's kind of where I think we're going to end yeah. up, but only time will tell. We shall see for sure. All right. All right. Thanks, Pete, for the breakdown. Let us know what your questions are um, in the comment section below. Let us know what you think the outcome is going to be and how you think it'll affect other jurisdictions and other states. Thanks for watching another episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you enjoyed the episode, please hit the thumbs up and share with your friends who may be interested here on YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Tragos Law is our handle. And don't forget to listen to The Lawyer You Know podcast featuring new episodes every week. If you have a case you want to talk to us about, if it's a personal injury case, wrongful death, catastrophic injury, car accident, or slip and fall case, please email us at lawyeryouknow at gmail.com. And of course, all these links I just mentioned are included in the description below on this episode and every episode. So until next time, this is Peter Tragos, the lawyer you know.